Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List, and you are listening to Mindful Metal Jacket. I already said that, and you already knew that. It would make sense to say that if I was on the radio and you just happened to be dialed in. But uh, you clicked a button that said this. It said Mindful Metal Jacket with Joe List. Anyways, this intro stinks. Uh, I'm glad you're listening. Happy Thursday. It is a big day in my life. Uh, if you're listening to this the day it came out, uh, even if you're not, as I'm talking, it's a big day. Well, actually, right now it's Wednesday. Oh, this is a big mess of an intro. But what I mean to say is that the day this comes out is August 6th, 2020, which is also the same day my new comedy special premieres debuts 9 p.m thursday august 6th on youtube comedy central's youtube page and whenever you're listening unless something's gone horribly wrong it's available right now on youtube um unless you're listening before 9 p.m on thursday august 6th Oh, this is confusing. I really should hit the stop button and start over, but I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to plow through and accept my failures and fail better, which is an allusion to something Gary Goleman will discuss later on on this very episode. Um, anyways, my new special, I Hate Myself, which is a feeling I'm feeling right now, is uh, will be available on YouTube starting August 6th at 9 p.m., I implore you to go check it out and to share it with some friends. I'm very proud of it. And um, yeah, it's out there. And uh, I thank you for listening, for tuning in. A lot of you have been listening. It seems like it's growing. I don't know, but I got a lot of really nice reviews and emails and Instagram messages. And um, I'm very grateful for them. I'm grateful to you for listening. And I'm glad it's having a positive effect on many people. Today is also a big day because my guest, as mentioned a moment ago, is Gary Gullman, who has, along with being the most requested guest on this podcast, many people have said he would be a great get and we should try to get him. And uh, we've been working on it. Gary was um, away and sharing Wi-Fi with many people, but now he is back in the city so nice that they named it twice. New York, New York. It's a hell of a town. Um, had a great conversation with Gary yesterday. Gary Gullman, for those of you who know me well and have followed my little career here and listened to Tuesdays with Stories, you know um, or have a sense of my feelings of Gary. Gary is probably my favorite comedian of all time, I would say. Uh, gun to my head. What kind of psycho would put a gun to my head? ask me my favorite comedian, but um, what makes Gary Gullman unique in my love for his comedy is he doesn't have any uh, specials or albums or appearances that I think aren't great. And um, most of my other favorite comics have put out something that I'm like, yeah, that's not so great. Um, Gary Gullman, I think it's all fantastic and um i've loved him since the first time i saw him he was the first comic i went and saw live when i was a teenager before i even started doing comedy we talk about that in a little bit i just think he's a brilliant comedian and a brilliant man 
and a dear friend. And uh, he's very special to me. And uh, we had a great conversation. We don't we don't get to see each other very much because of uh, these times. And uh, even before these times, you know, he's on the road, I'm on the road. And um, so it was great to catch up. Great conversation. And um, Gary has an amazing special on HBO, streaming on HBO and HBO Max called The Great Depression, which is half stand-up comedy and half documentary about um, his mental troubles, which we discuss. And uh, it's really uh, an incredible piece of work. And um, I encourage you to check that out if you haven't already. It's fantastic. And he has so many great specials uh, in this economy, boyish man. Um, I'm forgetting the name of some of the other ones, but um, he, God, why can't I think of it? Yeah, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in this moment, um, but they're great. He's got a couple albums, a couple specials. I think I opened for two of his specials. I did one in uh, here in New York and one in Boston and um grateful for that and uh i just think like i said he's my favorite comedian ever and he's uh been a very significant person in my life i've known him for almost 20 years now and um i i mentioned this in my last album are you mad at me uh in the liner notes which no one sees because albums are online now or streaming whatever but I had two of the most important conversations of my life with Gary right before I got sober. He gave me a, you might be an alcoholic test that I passed with flying colors. And this is an old joke in sobriety circles. If someone's giving you that test, then you probably are an alcoholic. Nobody that doesn't have drinking problems has a friend giving them an online quiz to find out if they're an alcoholic, but that's neither here nor there. He was sort of the last person I talked to before getting sober and, um, He's not a sober guy, but he uh, is is very familiar with um, recovering from um, mental problems, obviously, and just was very encouraging to me and just such a thoughtful guy. And then later when I was sober, I was my career was really struggling and we met up in the park and I was looking for help from him, you know, um, and he just gave me some advice that was very helpful. Uh, at the time I was frustrated because I wanted him basically to just give me money or take me on the road or whatever it was. And, uh, he just told me to not be so worried and just put my head down and focus on what I was doing and not worry about what everyone else was doing. And, um, success would, would follow from that. And, um, it was a lot more and more layered, but I don't have time to get into it now, but that was the gist. And, uh, it ended up being incredibly beneficial to me. And I still think about both of those conversations uh, on an almost daily basis. So all that to say, he has meant a tremendous amount to me. And I was very grateful that he took the time to do this. Um, we talked for over an hour and there's a lot of insight in here. We talk about our therapy and um, our therapist, therapy, comedy, ego, comparing ourselves to other people, exercise, fighting, growing up, um, toxic masculinity, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. And, um, there's just a lot in there and, um, I'm really proud of this episode. Really happy with it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I 
did. And, uh, I think that you will. And, um, yeah, I don't know what to say. It, uh, left me in a very reflective and thoughtful place. And, um, I hope it does the same for you. And, um, I just feel a lot of gratitude that I know Gary really looked up to him. We became friends and I continue to look up to him and, um, here you're going to hear a conversation. Oh, I wanted to say this at one point. Um, and I didn't say it while we were talking, Gary was, um, talking about stoicism and I believe he was talking about lowercase s stoicism, not capital S stoicism, which I've referenced. Um, and Shafi Hossein and I talked about the stoicism, which is something of a religion or, or belief, uh, which is different from, I believe what Gary's referring to of just being stoic and not showing emotion. Those are sort of two different things. I just wanted to sort of mention that in case, um, you hear Gary's being critical of stoicism, lowercase s and thinking, boy, isn't this what Joe is saying the opposite of this? Um, there's stoicism, capital S Marcus Aurelius and, um, lowercase. I think I might be completely wrong about that. I should have brought it up in the moment, but, um, the conversation led elsewhere, which happens sometimes in interviews. I don't know if any of that made sense, but if it made sense to you, great. If it didn't take what works and leave the rest, as we say, anyways, here comes the conversation with Gary Gullman. But first, a nice quote from this book, Ego is the Enemy, which we reference in the conversation and Shafi and I talked about. And this is a quote from Bertrand Russell, who said, One of the symptoms of approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. Hmm? It's not that important, folks. You'll be fine. We'll be fine. Take her easy, call a friend, but first, enjoy this conversation with one of my idols and dear friends, Gary Gullen. I want to start by saying this, Gary, you have been the most requested guest uh, for the show so far. Oh man, that's interesting because I was I was thinking that I'm not, I'm I'm the intersection of mental health and comedy is sort of my my spot right now um, and ha- has been for for about a year so I'm I'm very grateful for that I, I remember I remember hearing and and I'm not putting myself with this guy but I remember hearing that that John Singleton went to film school he said to write boys in the hood. He wanted to write that. And that's what he went to film school for. And I feel like I did comedy for 25 years so I could figure out how to do a good, a good show about depression and mental illness. So, so that's my, that's my, and, and just in, I, I don't mean this in a, in a highfalutin way, but it, it's my, it's my best work. So I think that makes it my masterpiece. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. I loved it. And um, I think we've, talked about it or I reached out to say how great it was. Yeah, that was really nice. That meant so much to me. It really when when other comedians like something, because I think we're both at a at a spot in comedy where we know we're gonna get laughs from the 
audience. We've figured out how to do that. But what what makes us really even happier is is when the other comedians also find it funny because we we know how much they've heard and also how skeptical they are of of new jokes. Yeah, for sure. And um, I was it's funny because we were doing stand up a long time now. You're doing a little longer, but I was we we haven't been able to do it for a few months now because of uh, COVID. And now the stand is doing shows outside, and it's a good setup. I've done a few outdoor shows, and I showed up. And Soder was on stage, who's a fantastic comedian. And sometimes she, I got there and I just hear like, uh, one time I was in kindergarten, or I can't do impressions. But do you have that moment where you hear <laughs> comedians sometimes and you just think, oh, shut up. All right. <laughs> I have it. And this is, and Soder, this is not against Soder. I would say this to him. I mean, one of my favorite, he's a brilliant comedian. And I feel yeah. this way. When I'm talking, when you ever do a bit and you're like, what am I talking about? Who cares? Oh my gosh. Yes. I like to call, I like to call that 1993 through 2006. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can remember talking. Cause so we've known each other a long time. I can remember talking to you and it was, you were really down on yourself and on comedy. And this is interesting now. I don't even know if you remember this conversation, but you were really beating yourself up and you're like, I didn't, I haven't brought anything new to the table. You're like, I just took what Jerry Seinfeld and Paul Reiser did and put my own small spin on it. And, and I remember I was probably like 25 and I was like, what are you kidding? You're the greatest buddy. <laughs> like, you're so funny. You're better than those guys. <laughs> but it, it seems like from talking to you a moment ago, even you feel like you have now taken your comedy at least to another maybe not comedy as a genre maybe you don't feel that way about yourself but you feel like you've taken your own work to another level that you had been probably what you were imagining when you were having that conversation with me 15 years ago yeah completely i mean that the the quote or idea that i always come back to when we discuss this is this thing that that ira glass from this american life said about how when we go into an art, the thing that brought us there is our love of that art form. And, and we have an interest in doing right by that art form. We have good taste. We've always had good taste since we started in comedy. You and I love the same types of comedians and, and at varying degrees of, 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 success but we we had similar taste we had good taste and that's what makes it so hard when you start because you look at what you're doing and you compare it to what you like and you you beat yourself up for for so long and that's that's good and bad it's good in that you you hold yourself to a, a high level but it's bad for sensitive people like us and also self-critical and and i think that that brings us to to mental illness where the where the self critical voice in our in our head is so loud so persistent so strong especially in times when our our depression or our anxiety or our our other mental illnesses are are at a at a high level and and we're paralyzed by it we're crippled by it and and it's 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 very sad because i'm sure there are so many comedians who just had to stop doing it because it was it was so painful yeah our buddy uh dan hershon remember dan hershon who's a, a wonderful comedian who i oh think listens gosh. to this show who had so many great jokes was so funny 
And so funny, so nice. He was, oh my gosh, he was in that, that like God, I think made Josh Gondelman and Dan Hershon around the, around the same time. They were like, how can we, how can I use some of the things that I put into, I don't know who's older, but whoever was made first, they, they put a lot of the niceness, kindness and, and menschitude in, into those two guys and funniness. Yeah, terrific. I mean, Hershey must be a little bit older because we started together and um, he was just fantastic and so funny. And he's still in um, the industry. Essentially, he does editing and photography and and, and some writing. And I talked to him a little bit here and there and um, still really funny. But he gets to create comedy through editing and video and writing. But he was a guy, I remember similarly to us that would just beat himself up and had so much anxiety and self-hatred and depression. And I can remember um, having all the discussions we have with each other where you're like, you got to keep going and you have this and, you know, we, we comedians keep each other going and we kind of wrote a sketch about it, but like he started to make better arguments than I had for him no longer doing comedy. Really? Yeah. Where he's like, yeah, but I don't, I don't even like that where I'm like, but we get to be together or this or that. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not enjoying that either. And you kind of have that moment of like, ah, shit. Okay. Boy, I guess that's it. Yeah. See, that's interesting because it's, it's hard to say, for instance, when, when I was sick and I, I, I talked about this in the, in the special, I, I, I hated every aspect of, of comedy. I didn't like the, the hang and I didn't like the performance. I couldn't write. So every aspect of it was, was dist- distressing me. I think that's a word. And so I said, well, I have to stop doing this. But instead of, and I did stop for a while, but in the meantime, between going back to it and stopping, I got healthy. I, I corrected the the depression and the the anxiety slowly but surely over a over a summer. And when I came back, I realized that it wasn't it wasn't the comedy I hated. I hated everything. And that's one of the one of the symptoms of depression that people either ignore or aren't aware of is that you no longer get any pleasure out of things that used to make your life worthwhile. And that's so significant, but we're so in this country and maybe in in this time in in history, we're so concerned with success and achievement as making us happy that we, we don't really consider those things that really give us pleasure to be important so that the fact that we stop getting pleasure from them, we we don't think that that's a, a symptom of that something's wrong. I didn't, I didn't enjoy watching basketball. I didn't enjoy playing basketball. I didn't enjoy reading all these things that got me, gave me great pleasure. I I didn't really enjoy. And, and so I I think people should, should be aware that that's a, that's a critical symptom of depression. And I, I am imagining this perhaps, but I can picture the people that I know saying, well, one thing is that uh, things that used to bring me great joy, uh, I dread doing or find too difficult, or I don't have the energy to do them anymore. Uh, but that's all. And, and that's a huge percentage of what makes life worth living is the things you look forward to and not looking forward to comedy, which was something I remember 
early on, there used to be a lot of snow in Boston when I was starting. Mm -hmm. And if a show got snowed out, even if I wasn't getting paid, I was, I was so bummed out. I was devastated. And every other job I've ever had, school, everything, a snow out was, was a, a thing to, to rejoice over. So, so I think that's a, a significant component of, of mental illness that, that people either ignore or, or feel guilty about complaining about something that's so important because they, they want credit for being stoic or think that people are, are impressed by stoicism or require stoicism. I don't know. It's, it's, it's upsetting. Well, that's one of the things um, with depression, I guess, that where people, you get to a point, and I've had this with anxiety, which has led me to depression, a similar feeling of people try to help, but nothing helps, which makes it even worse where you're like, no, no, I tried to play basketball. I tried to go to yeah. the Caribbean or I tried to whatever yeah. and it all made it worse. So then you start to think I'm like, I'm truly to my soul, my core sick because even these things that should work are not working. And so then where do you go once the things that work aren't working? Yes. I think, first of all, I want to say anxiety or depression. I'd rather have depression. Anxiety is is was so much worse for me, and so unbearable, and so so painful on so many different levels, like physically painful. And so, I mean, none of them are a picnic. And when they were combined, which is something that I had, and and it caused me to go into the hospital for for several weeks twice. I. I, I can't imagine anything worse. It's, it's such a, a, a miserable ex experience. But when when you say that nothing helps, it's it's interesting because I found that there was one thing that consistently helped at least a little bit. So going to play basketball did nothing, and exercising was so difficult. It was it was like walking around with with weights on my shoulders as I was, as I was even walking and, and I couldn't even keep up with my, with my wife, girlfriend at the, at the time because she, and, and now, I mean, I, I raced past her walking. I'm so much taller than her, but anyhow, physical exertion was, was so difficult. It was so, I was so fatigued all the time. The one thing that helped a little bit consistently was what we're doing now, which was, was talking and, and even on the phone, it was especially great when, when you and I would walk in the, in the park or I would go to the comedy cellar, force myself to go there because I didn't, I didn't want to go there and not even perform, but just hang around with the, with the other, with the other comedians. And, and so that was, that was huge in getting out of it. And I actually, and this is something that I always tell people to do, and I know how hard it is to do under the current circumstances, but I would, I would accept invitations from people I met during meet and greets. They would, they would, there would always be at least one person 
man who would say, do you want to have coffee with me? And I, or, or lunch. And I would say yes, because it gave me something I couldn't get out of because I wouldn't take their phone number. I would tell them to meet me somewhere. And then, and then I would, I would go. And that was, that was really helpful. I remember at my lowest and I was, I was, it was the night before I moved back to Boston to move back into my mom's house. I went to the Rich Voss roast because I, I knew it would be my last time seeing everybody in the same place for a while. And I also knew that it would not hurt me to get out of the house. And I went to it. And for two hours, I was, I was out of my head and laughing and, and really enjoying myself. My, my life was, you could, if you were charting it, you would say it was at its, it was at its lowest. I was moving back into my mother's house at 46 years old, I think. And, and yet I was able to, to feel some, some community and some pleasure for, for more than two hours. And I immediately went back to my, my anxiety and my worries, but I got a, a respite from it. And, and so I, I, and, and my, my psychiatrist said this, he said, drag people, drag people out of the, out of the house if you, if you have to. And, and in, in this circumstance, I, I, I guess it's make people talk to you on the phone for, for a, a long time and, and listen to them because it's, it's, it's really helpful. And it, and it does increase serotonin and, and dopamine. It's chemically uh, effective. Yeah, I love that stuff. And I, I talk about that a lot on the show. I encourage people to reach out to friends because it feels like a strangely forgotten part. Because I, I do, I always say I'm actively sober, which involves a lot of talking to people. And then um, I do, I meditate a lot and I exercise and I go to therapy and um, all of those things. But a huge part of it is is talking to friends and Sarah and I go for long walks and I go to the same, I always say like even going to the same bagel place every morning, I can feel that dopamine release of them being like, uh, oh, hello. They know what I want. The feeling yes. of like somebody knowing your order yes. is so yes. kind. And, and they're Asian. They barely speak English. We've never had any dialogue on our what we think or our feelings or our beliefs or anything, but it's just like, Oh, hello. You know, I'm not going to do my impression, yeah. but, um, <laughs> um, in the nineties you could, I can't now, but they would, they go, hello. And they, they cut it. They, and they know I like a lighter bagel. Cause I don't want to, you know, burned or cut. She's like, oh, get, and one of the person will grab it. She goes, no, no, get them the lighter one. And she'll scooch someone out of the way. She's like, I know what bagel. And I feel Oh, yes. I feel well. And even my cinnamon roll, she picks the one with the most frosting because it took me everything I had at one point to be like, can I have this one instead? You know, you have to assert yourself. Yeah. And oh, I just so leave, hard. I leave feeling good. Oh, I've, Gary, I've bought two or three bagels in the past because the guy that doesn't know me kept grabbing a one I didn't want that was overcooked. And I'd be like, you know what? I'll take two bagels, hoping the second time he'd get the one I want because I'm too afraid to ask a man to get the bagel I want. That is, that is hilarious. And I hope you write that down because it's, because you're not the only one who feels that way. I don't want anybody to do anything out of the ordinary for me at a job that I imagine I couldn't last two hours at because it gets so busy in those, those places. So I'm, I'm always on my best behavior. And if they don't get me the right bagel, who am I to ask for the right bagel? I, I, I resent the people who 
are taking samples and and putting these people out and asking people to go in the back. I I I, I don't care for them. So you have to write that down. So so a couple of things came to my mind. One is we we think to ourselves, these people are saints and they're going out of their way for us. But I want to say, and, and I should probably say this to, to myself, perhaps, you, you'll have to tell me if this is true about me. But people, I just know from the moment I, I met you that you were a sweet, nice guy who meant nobody any harm. And I, and I think it's a combination of the glasses and your 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 uneasiness that that makes people comfortable around you. So here's the thing: they deal with the people who are who are pointing and being jerks all day long. You are a breath of fresh air to them, and and they are happy to see you. You're doing something for for them. So I would I would say that the other thing is I was I was wondering because I I I wanted to get across and I and I, I'm not I'm not plugging the special but but you have to understand it's all related to mental mental health. I but while I'm at it it's on HBO Max and and streaming on HBO platform. It's called The Great Depression, but the thing is is that I wanted to get across how how helpful my wife was to my recovery and and I'm I'm wondering if you feel comfortable talking about that aspect because I, I have to say Sade, my my wife went to all my psychiatry appointments. She studied up on on depression and anxiety. She she actually went so far as to grow mushrooms in our apartment, which was really difficult. I mean, it, it is it is not easy because she had read something about the how promising it, it was to, I guess, microdose of psilocybin mushrooms. So so she went all out and I, I think it's it's important. And I'm not saying leave your to people leave your wife if she's not supportive, but it it can really I I always think about just it's a in in art collaborations like you have with Mark and and other people in your life collaborations and I know you work comedy wise with 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 Sarah so frequently and so well in writing and performing uh, a collaboration in your mental health or your recovery is it, it's great leverage it's great leverage yeah i have to it's it's tricky because sarah deals with depression herself so a lot of it is it's funny when we both have a mental illness mine is you know ocd and anxiety and she has depression and anxiety also we got we both have little touches of each other's thing. Um, so it is, it's a, it's a back and forth a lot of the times, but I had to eventually with my hypochondria, which is another part of all that say to her, like kind of tell her what I needed in, in saying like, when I'm going off about my tooth, I need you to put a limit on it and say, okay, that's, that's enough. Well, I can't hear about your tooth anymore. And what's really happening is you're having anxiety. I need someone to tell me. And, and, and there's times where it's helped me and Alan, my therapist, our, our therapist, I think helped our therapist. Our therapist yes. has I helped. I was thinking that this sounds like Alan advice and it's yeah. so helpful. Oh, totally. Well, he helped with, cause I remember at one point I was dealing with, you know, panic attacks shortly before we got married and, and remember Sarah just not knowing how to deal with that and kind of snapping and being like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do. 
And that actually, even though it sounds sort of unsympathetic, it actually helped me because it allowed, it set a, um, a precedent or a, or a boundary of like, oh shit, I'm about to lose my wife here. This feeling of like, this is really frustrating. Let me dial it back because now I'm like you said, I don't want to cause anyone harm. So now it's like, I'm distressing you. Let me try to take a breath and, and, and start over. It was actually helpful in some ways. So later on, I had to kind of say, just let remind me, I need someone to tell me that I'm, I'm freaking out right now. Yeah. And I can't, I can't have it. it. It helps to have someone sort of limit it in a way. And also she also makes me feel love. She recognizes now that I, sometimes you just need love. You feel unprotected. That's, that's my core problem is feeling unloved and unprotected in the world. And you just need to be reminded of that sometimes. Yeah. That's, that's where it's helpful. That's, that's really some, some great Alanifying of a, <laughs> of a situation. I mean, if you, if, if we had to develop a, a pull a string doll for, for Alan, I think one of the things that would be so helpful when in, when in doubt, you can't get him on the phone or whatever, you pull the string and he says, ask for what you want. Right. Tell her what you, tell her what you need. And, and, and that raises an, another th thing, which is, I, I don't, I've known some of the other women that you've, that you've dated over the years. And, and I think it's so helpful but not that common or, or, or not the, not always the norm that people are, are open with their partners ab about their, their mental health. So, I mean, I, I started off, I feel it was almost like the dark ages in, in therapy in that I, I started going my freshman year of college and I kept it from my girlfriend for two years. I would I would sneak in and out of the place. I never told her what I was going. I would whenever I had to go in the summer, I would say I had to check on my financial aid. And she 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 said when I finally told her what was going on, she said I I knew it was odd that they would that they would um, make you come in and discuss your financial aid every Thursday. <laughs> it seems so unnecessary and that they were making you jump through too many hoops. And, and so I, I was afraid at that time that if I told her that I was suffering from depression, that she would be scared off. And, and I'm sure there were people, I'm sure there are people nowadays who would say, this is too much for me. I can't, I can't handle this. I, I, I will say that since college, I had a policy of telling anyone I dated as soon as it got reasonably serious that I had suffered from this thing and, and that I was, I was doing okay now, but it gets dark and, and I, I, I felt comfortable sharing that. And also I, I didn't think it was fair not to share it with, with someone. So I, I, I think it's, it's really important. The other thing is that for the most part, it, it doesn't make the people run away and it brings you closer and, and raises the relationship to a, to a higher, higher level of intimacy and, and confidence. Yeah. I think that's a good thing um, 
to put out there and let people hear because I think men particularly, or maybe women too, because you know, so many men are like, ah, women are crazy and whatever. Uh, but men, I think, particularly have this feeling built in that they're supposed to be, uh, you know, tough and un unaffected and all this stuff. So I think it does help that to let people know that that is good for a relationship to get that out there. And then it's like, you're working together as a team. That's what I find is nice about um, marriage is sort of, we're committed to each other. So no matter where you go mentally, I'm going to do my best to help in whatever way I can and vice versa. Um, that's been really helpful. Yeah. I think that that collaborative uh, approach is, is so helpful and, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's right or helpful for men to try and continue this, this absurd men keep their, their emotions to themselves and don't discuss their issues and their problems. And this this, I, I honestly believed until I, I read an article, I think in the, in the, in the, in the Atlantic where this, this woman named Peggy Ornstein and she, you should, you should read it. She, she studied girls for a long time, young women. And then she turned her attention to young boys. And, and so I was prepared to read that boys of the millennial, the generation Z, that they are very open about their feelings and they are uh, more evolved than we were and that they have different views and, and philosophies on what it is to be a, to be a man. And I was, I was wrong. Young, young boys, high school boys still think that a strong man is, is quiet about his feelings and his emotions, that he should be dominant and aggressive and that it's, that it's weak to, to not, it's, it's weak to open up about, about your, your issues, your feelings and your, your troubles. And, and that, that really surprised me because I, I, I really believe that along with it, with at least a dozen other things, including medication and exercise and eating right and, and getting out and being with, with people and, and adjusting my, my definition of success, I think coming to terms with what I always considered my weakness, which was the fact that I, I wasn't a, a dominant personality that I was, I was very athletic, but I, I didn't really, I was always the guy, Oh, if he would just get aggressive, if he would just, if he would just bowl somebody over on his way to the hoop, if he, if he would just use those athletic gifts in a more aggressive way, he would be so much better. He would be such a, a star. And, and so I hated that aspect of me. And it wasn't until I, I, addressed it out in the open on, on a, a This American Life with Ira Glass, where I talked about what a colossal failure I was in, in, in football at Boston College, that I, I felt unburdened. I was like, oh, nobody has this on me anymore. This idea that I was so soft 
as a as a as a tight end that I could I could jump very high and and catch the ball and then I really wanted to get to the ground as as soon as possible so that I didn't take too big of a of a hit and and so it was it was so cathartic which is a word that gets used so often, but it, it really felt like such a, a relief that that nobody had this on me. And it goes back to something Alan told me on like one of my first weeks of, of therapy where he said, if everybody knows everything about you, if you're an open book, then they have nothing on you. And, and I've heard it said in other ways that you're only as sick as your secrets or, or just other things like that. But, I, I, I really think that, that and, and it's another Alanism, accept yourself. You pull the string and Alan says, accept yourself. This is oh. who you are. Stop fighting, stop fighting your, your nature. And, and I, I think that was, I don't think it's a coincidence that I've had my most sturdy, long lasting recovery, remission from depression and anxiety at about the same time I came to terms with with what I considered my my weakness, which was actually in in many ways a strength, or at least addressing it and being honest about it takes a takes a strength. And my 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 strength is made stronger through my weakness. I think your friend Jesus Christ said something like that. Um, I do have a friend in Jesus, um, <laughs> but yes, I felt very similar to you too. I was a very good athlete, but I had um, I can remember. I only played soccer for one year when I was like seven or something like that. Really young. I didn't love it. And I remember someone on a throw in threw the ball right towards my head and I just ducked out of the way. And I remember, <laughs> I remember um, Mrs. Tobin looking right at me and going, what do you, why did you do that? Or something like that. And I remember being like, cause I didn't want to get hit in the head. Like, and I remember yeah. feeling so ashamed and bad and embarrassed that I'm like, I'm a pussy. It's been revealed that I'm this pussy, but who wants to get hit in the head? I thought yeah. <laughs> like, that's crazy. And I felt very similarly. I had a lot of people say the same thing when I played basketball, I remember like the referee was a coach from another team. And then you'd ref whatever. And he pulled me aside and he goes, I want to see you get aggressive. Just take the ball yeah. right to the hoop. And I was, a lot of it was anxiety. I was just nervous and I felt bad. And I, I always had this thing. I've been taking mixed martial arts for a while to also help my MMA and my, I mean, with my um, anxiety and it's been really rewarding and enjoyable, but I do it one-on-one -on -one with a friend and we were just talking. I was like, I'm, I struggle with this a little bit because I have an immense prevalent feeling and desire to never hurt anybody even a little. So it's a weird choice because um, even when we're sparring and, and he's a jujitsu black belt cage fighter and he said, which I love, I, I would like to have the skill. He's like, you, if, if I want you, you are unable to hit me when we're sparring. I can make it. You cannot do it. You're just too new and weak of a fighter, but I want you to let, but I'm like, even when I see an opening, I can't, I just can't punch somebody. I don't have it in me. I don't want to. Um, although I'd like to, the, the skill to be able to defend myself and, you know, feel secure in that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a weird thing where I've always felt I'm a big pussy or a bitch or this, whatever, um, especially growing up in Boston where there was so much value put on how tough you are. And if you could fight, those are the two things valued. I feel like, and maybe this is everywhere 
But to me growing up, the two things that were value were being tough and being funny. And you had to be either one or the other. People would either be like, that guy's tough. That guy could kick your ass. And I always thought, oh, wow, that was so cool. Or it would be like, that guy's funny. Those are the only two things that were ever valued. And um, I always felt confident that I was very funny and always very, very self-conscious that I was not tough at all. Yeah, that is that is a great observation about being tough or or being funny. But the, the other side of that was being soft was the worst crime. Being a being a, a pussy, a sissy, weak. There was all kinds of homophobia involved in not being really good at contact sports. Mm-hmm. Soccer was considered a sport that that guys would would openly question your sexuality and sexual orientation if you played or or god forbid excelled at soccer and in Boston I don't know if it was that way elsewhere but when I was growing up soccer was considered a, a soft sport and and the the other thing I remember is that if you were smart if you were smart they were they were not comfortable with with that. You you wanted to keep that to yourself, and and you if you were smart, you better be tough as well. Which which was weird because it was it was not a common combination to be tough and wicked smart. It was right. it was rare. There were guys who were tough and street smart, which was like the the greatest thing. But to be book smart, to get good grades was was just so. You would you would want to keep that to yourself, and and hopefully you had people in in your life. I know I didn't, but but people. I I wish I had more people in my life who would have said to me, "These are not important things." We we needed an Alan growing up, and and instead we had kind of a a a, a personality that had been forged by by toxic masculinity and some sort of Puritan worth work ethic and whatever was going on in, in Massachusetts when I was when I was growing up. But it's interesting that you say you feel uncomfortable hitting somebody because I remember being in I've maybe been in two or three fights in in my life and and other scrapes, they always involved me subduing the person rather than doing any any damage, either grabbing them by the, the collar and pinning them to the wall. Or one time I got a guy into a headlock, but I didn't really know what to do from there because I, I the the idea of punching somebody in the face, I I I am not comfortable with that. I don't know that I, I've punched anybody in the in the face. I remember one time when I was in, in fifth grade. This kid and I and I and I don't think he would have been able to tell me at the time why we were fighting because we had been little league teammates the year prior and we were we were friends. I went to his his birthday party at McDonald's and then we were fighting after school and I didn't know how to box. I didn't know how to throw a punch. I didn't know anything. I grabbed his wrists uh, because I, I guess I was going to try and subdue him. I grabbed his wrists. And he and he headbutted me, and I remember thinking, "Oh, this this guy is really different than than I am. His <laughs> his his approach seems to be 
from from another category than than mine and and i i mean i i lost the the fight and he he let up on me eventually and and i believe it was it was it was sort of understood that if you cried the fight would be the fight would be over so i i i took that upon myself to to use that that was sort of like the the, the white towel or the or the or the bell if you if you cried people would generally let up let up on you and and so that's how that that ended but it's it's interesting that you think it's only you who is not a tough guy and it's actually a a fairly sizable quadrant of the male population that that doesn't look forward to punching somebody in the in the face but it makes sense that there are people who do want to punch people in the face that there would be people who don't want to punch people in the face. That there, there would, that there's some sort of uh, yin yang there. Sure, yeah, and I think most of the people that want to punch people in the face are probably unwell. They're probably coming from unsettling child uh, or, or homes. Not that we weren't also, but um, right, right, yeah. But, it's I, I always feel like they could, they could, maybe seventy five percent of the the MMA fights would end if at the beginning one of them hugged the other and said it's not your fault um i have a i've been i have a similar joke to that if these refs these ufc refs i just wouldn't make a good one i'm like as soon as one punch landed i would break it up and be like you're loved (laughs) and that's enough i mean you guys are really you're both winners and somebody, somebody loves you or, or somebody (laughs) somebody who should have loved you didn't and that's not your fault um, yeah, but there are people right now hearing this who are saying, oh, what a pussy Joe is and everything can be cured with therapy and we're talking to you. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I do. I, I love a fight. I enjoy watching fights. I like it as a, a sport, but they're, they're barbaric. Certainly. They're barbaric and, and you're perpetuating it. Well, the thing that I, my instructor told me that made me feel better because I always thought this, this fight, I can't get into it, but I got into it mostly during um, quarantine because it was the only sport and I have a, a deep desire to watch anything athletic. But the thing that makes me feel better about it is that they did both sign up for it. It's not a guy beating up a guy because he cut him off in traffic. <laughs> You know what I mean? It is two yes. men or oh, women good, that are like, I'm ready yeah. to, I'll, I'm going to go get in a fight and let's, let's fight. Because somebody beating someone up who didn't agree to the fight or doesn't want to be in a fight, that is to me the most unsettling thing in, in, in life or one of the most thing. It's almost, yeah. it's, it's strangely, um, well, this is going to be too controversial. I was going to say it, it's, akin to like a, a sex cry where it's like, you've decided this thing is happening to a person that's not interested in it happening. Like when, if someone just goes, you cut me off, whatever we're fighting. And the other person is just trying to cover up. I mean, to me, it's like one of the most heinous things you can do to somebody is fight somebody that doesn't want to fight you. But however, if both people would said, okay, I'll fight him. Let's here we, here we go. We're going to go fight. Um, that to me has become quite, enjoyable to uh to watch yeah i just i just worry about the long term i just saw what what happened with 
Muhammad Ali and what's happened with a lot of football players. I, I, I just, I, I worry about the long-term effects of, of concussions and, and those types of things. And I, I don't, and I know the mindset of, of athletes that they're willing to exchange the future for, for current success and, and, and achievement. And I, I wish they wouldn't. Yeah, I've I've definitely felt um, my sport watching change. I love it just as much. But now when I see a really violent hit and I, when I was younger, you'd go, ah, yeah. And now I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like yeah. you, you have empathy uh, quicker. You're like, oh, that's that was horrific. Um, yeah. But um, there was something else that we touched on that I wanted to talk about. Um, it was something about Alan or some sort of Alanism. Oh, this is what I was going to say uh, earlier. I had this thought about it's interesting as he pointed this out that certain things get through to you differently depending on the relationship you have with the person. Like for years, I would be freaking out about something medical or whatever school or getting a shot or having to fl- whatever it was. And people would go, it's just anxiety. You're just nervous. It's all in your head. They would kind of say dismissively. Mm-hmm. And then Alan, my therapist, I go there and he says, it's just anxiety. And it changes my whole life. I'm like, yes, of course, it's just anxiety. But if my wife or mother or cousin said it's just anxiety, I'd be like, you don't understand. You fucking, you're dismissing. And maybe it's the way he says it or that he's a professional or I guess it's just different relationships mean different things. But you know, a, a professional saying, Gary, go for a walk and go talk to a stranger might sound different if, um, you know, your aunt said, oh, just go for a walk. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's it's a great point. I remember one time for weeks, I felt fatigued and and fluish. This was like in 2000 or 1999, maybe. And I finally, I said, I, I have to go to the doctor. And it, it wasn't a doctor I had seen more than, more than once. It was, it was part of the, the health plan. I, I think it was called HMO. I don't know if that's still a, still a system or not, but it was an HMO doctor. And so I had, I had only seen him once. And he said, and he was so kind. He said, listen, I've done a lot of tests on you, blood tests and, and other tests and I don't mean this to put you down or or to dismiss how you're feeling I think you feel this way but and and he actually said these words he said it's 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 in your head and and I walked out of there on on air I it was it was it made sense that it was anxiety and and fear and depression and not that I was that I was dying, and 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 the, the the thing that that people are are so mean about about hypochondriacs is that they they tell the people basically to deny their their feelings, and and they're saying you don't feel like that because it's not in actuality. But I I felt all those things, but I I needed somebody kind to tell me that it was my, it was my anxiety, my, my fear. And it, it's, 
it's interesting how many times I can be told that it's my anxiety and it doesn't, it doesn't make the anxiety go away. It, it gives me the idea that it will go away when I come to terms with or face the thing that I'm dreading or fearing. For instance, I know what will happen the next time I have a, a show. The day before and the entire day, I will be thinking, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't have it anymore. I, or, or for moments, I'll say, if I went on stage right now, I'd do a good job. Up oh, it went. I, I, I won't do a good job if I go on stage. Right. And then I will feel listless. Sorry. No pun intended. I, I, during the day, I will be distracted. I will be irritable. I will then get on stage. I will do however I do. As soon as I get off, I will feel myself and I will say, oh, I was anxious about this all day long and, and yesterday, just like the last time something like this, just like the last time I went and had a... a a TV set or I had a, a an interview to give or do a, a podcast. I, I will say that that I have a, a great compliment for you, which is I usually get really anxious before every podcast, but I was I was really looking forward to to doing this one with with you because I I I think of you as like a brother. Oh, I appreciate that. That does make me feel good. And I also get very anxious, especially with this podcast, because I'm like, I don't know how to, how do you talk to someone for an hour straight with no notes or not even a thought? I don't even go, well, I'll ask about this. or we'll talk about this. Um, and it actually helps me to just go, yeah, but you will. And I, I have the same exact thing. It's so helpful to go, well, that's your, that's anxiety. Well, and Alan helps me with this too, as you go back through, I'm like, when's the last time this is like Alan talking. It was like, when's the last time you recorded a podcast and you just had to stop it 20 minutes in because you both ran out of things to say? <laughs> you know, I had that when I, I was having insomnia for a while because I was having anxiety. It was all from anxiety, panic attacks, and I just couldn't sleep. And I, in the afternoon, I was like, I, I'm losing my mind. I won't be able to sleep tonight. And Alan helped with that. He goes, well, eventually you'll sleep. And he was like, when's the last time you were um, committed because you hadn't slept in months? Eventually, you'll you you will sleep. You'll you get tired. You'll fall asleep. It's you, oh but we go gosh. down this this hole. But I have the same thing. I just got back last night from my parents. I went to go visit my family, and my family triggers all this anxiety and hypochondria. And I found myself googling esophageal cancer, which I've been really good about not googling stuff. I used to always be googling and asking everybody because we were talking about reflux and my uncle had esophageal cancer because he had chronic reflux. And I'm sitting there at the dinner table, Googling it. And I had that moment of, Oh, it's my family. My family's stressing me out. So I'm having, I don't have cancer. Put the phone down. You're just having that thing. And it took me years because it, and I've talked about this before. It doesn't seem possible that I can have crippling tooth pain. Something, and this speaks to what you were saying about people being like, ah, it's in your head. Where I'm like, it's not in my head. I am having dental pain. It hurts. And then I go to the dentist and he's looking, he's going, there's nothing wrong with your tooth. And I'm like, there has to be, it hurts. And he's like, listen, if you really want, I can crack into your tooth, drill into your tooth. He's like, but there's nothing there. I'm telling you. And it, my dentist is really helpful with my anxiety too. He's like, 
I've been doing, I'm a dentist. He's like, I got certificates and the thing. I'm looking at your tooth. There's not anything wrong with your tooth. And it's amazing that you can uh, create this pain from your brain. You can get so stressed and so anxious that your body literally creates a pain to focus on instead of the pain of your childhood or whatever it is or, or other fears. Because I guess psychologically, your brain is like, well, well, let's give them something to think about or focus on. And I've had that with hip pain, stomach pain, head pain, tooth pain, asshole pain, literally. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And it all ended up being nothing. And you realize it's just stress and anxiety. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I will say that, that I've, I've been... I've found it helpful over the years in, in reducing some of the anxiety, some of the anxiety I bring upon myself because of my idea of, of how important my, my preparation is. So if I'm not, if I'm not prepared, I, I go by this John Wooden aphorism, which is, Failing to prepare is preparing to to fail. So I I need to prepare for for my shows, for my meetings. For I, I generally don't prepare if I'm a guest on a on a podcast unless I have something to to promote. But I I think that I alleviate a lot of my my anxiety over my lack of preparation or my perceived lack of preparation with this, with this trick that I, I learned. I don't know if I ever told you about it, but I, I say, I'm, I'm just going to spend 15 minutes on whatever it is, preparing a set list, going over my, my jokes, going over a, a new joke. I'm just going to do it for 15 minutes. I'll set a timer after 15 minutes. I can, I can stop. And but the other side of that is you have to, one, you have to be open to going longer than 15 minutes because you, you probably will. The other thing is that you have to say to yourself, I've, I've done everything I can at this, at this point, everything I was capable of, which is pretty much everything I, I can. And I have to, I have to let go of it now because perfectionism and, and the, the anally prepared as I'm, I'm often called has, has drawbacks in that, in that it can be, it can be paralyzing and, and prevent you from, from doing any work, Never mind great work. It can, it can keep you out of the, out of the game. You'll never be prepared. So I, 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 I always think of, of, of the Ghostbusters line where the, where the guys, I, I think it's Bill Murray who says, if somebody asks you, if you're a God, say, say yes. And, and then figure it out. Don't, don't turn something down because you don't believe in yourself. Just say, just say yes. And in, invariably you'll, you'll figure it out. And that, and the, and the 15 minute rule I think are, are, are great habits and, and really great tools for, for dealing with, with a lot of anxiety, procrastination, and, and this, this thinking where unless I, unless I write my entire novel today, I've, I've failed. 
No, to start start it for 15 minutes and and see what happens. Yeah, that's see that's really helpful and I think another thing that helped me that Alan helped me with is the um accepting your worst fear and also you'll just you'll deal with whatever it is. Like I I was always so so much anxiety my whole life because I might have uh I need a root canal or I might have you know, a stomach problem, or maybe I'm diabetic, or maybe I'm going to bot, whatever it is. And he would just say, yeah, well, you'll just deal with that if you do have it. Like, think of all of the things that have come up throughout your life or my life or whoever's listening, all the things that have come up through your life that weren't ideal, you dealt with all of them. And if you're sitting here listening to this podcast, you're doing pretty well. You're one of the luckiest people on the planet. If you're sitting here listening to us talk, You've done okay. Right. So anything that's come up before, clearly you've, you're of an age that you've dealt with your first period and a breakup and dental work and you've probably broken a bone or gotten stitches and all that stuff wasn't pleasant, but you dealt with it and you're fine. You're here now. And so you have to trust that you'll deal with whatever happens. Maybe your late night set, if you're a comic, won't be as great as you wanted it to be. Or maybe you won't get a sitcom or if you're in the business world, you won't get that promotion, but you'll just, you'll deal with it. You'll deal with the amount of money you are making, or maybe you lose your job and maybe someone will lend you money or you get a different job, whatever comes up, you'll be able to deal with it. And that has really helped me just go, yeah, whatever I'll be, I'll be fine. No matter what happens, even if my house burns down, people's houses burn down. They just, it sucks and they figure it out. Tornadoes destroy houses, whatever. Um, you know, you, you work it out, you figure it out. And Alan always says that it, 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 it's so maddening, but there's wisdom in it of like, I'm like, well, what if I, I'm afraid I have brain cancer. And he's like, okay, so maybe you have brain cancer. You'll deal with that too. Even if you're dying, you'll deal with that. You know, at some point yeah. you'll, you'll accept, oh, you'll be dead. And he'll go, so yeah, what's so bad about that? <laughs> it's, it's interesting, but I want to, I want to caveat, caveat, this with with one thing it is infinitely easier to face things such as getting fired a breakup an illness or or death if you are healthy mentally so i i wasn't able to face even the the basic things of of life i was i was overwhelmed by them. I was in a really good position financially and career-wise, and yet my chemistry was telling me that I was a, a complete failure and that I was better off dead and that, in, in fact, I should, I should kill myself and let me go online and figure out painless ways to kill myself. So I, I, I think from a position of, yes, I'm, I'm healthy, there's there aren't many things that I don't feel like I could, I could overcome. And, and that's why I think it's, it's so important to recognize that the, the biggest component over whether you will overcome, whether you will succeed, whether you will be happy is if your, your chemistry and your mental health is, is aligned to help you do those things. Because I, I wrote five minutes between five minutes of jokes between 2000 between March of 2015 and 
July of 2017. And since then, I've written over three hours of, of comedy. An hour and a half of it was whittled down to an hour for the Great Depression. Then I toured with an hour and a half to two hours of new material. And that, that wasn't because I finally found out a trick of comedy. It was because I finally was operating on, on every cylinder. I had my mental health. I was, I was operating in, in reality. And, and I, I think that a lot of people do themselves a disservice if they don't make their mental health as high a priority as their dental, as, as their rectal, or as their cardio health. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd that a, a, a lot of insurance companies don't honor mental health at the same level they honor heart health and all these other things. They're, they're all, they're all inner interlinked and or linked i don't i think inter is unnecessary with with linked so i i <laughs> I, I would say that that before you do anything address your mental health and i and i think just by the fact that people are listening to us and you have this we are people who are going to get better because we're willing to do something anything to get better and it, and it's it's gradual and you may have to hit it from a number of different different angles. I, I use medicine and, and meditation, and I know your your spirituality and your meditation has been so helpful in your in your your well being. But I, I also found an, a, another component of my recovery that was so important because I, I don't know if you've ever had this with your with your stand up, but I I was at a point in my stand up where my and it, it was partially my my mental health, but my mood was determined by how well my last set went. So if I had a great set, I felt really good. And if I had a bad set, I was inconsolable. And I I found this quote from, from Samuel Beckett in which he said, basically, try again, fail again, fail better. I fail better and and it's it's not a, a coincidence that fail better and feel better sound similar that was intentional by him and and I found myself risking more on stage and being more comfortable with failing getting better because of that knowing that failing was was part of the process and and perhaps the most important part of the process that going out there and and we know the clubs where we shouldn't bomb because we'll get less spots next week but you need those places where you can fail and and for me at the time it was in in Cambridge at the comedy studio and and once there was not a penalty in my mood for doing poorly everything everything changed and and i i think as a, as an artist or just as a as a human being giving yourself permission to fail and again it's something alan told me again and again he would he would say regarding parenting that the greatest gift you can give a child is permission to to fail and and that is such great advice and then when you're aware of that you find it everywhere every artist talks about every writer, every painter, every creative person talks about 
the necessity of failing, taking big risks and making huge mistakes. And, and I, I, I think that's crucial. Yeah. Here, here. Uh, I love, <laughs> I love that. That was helpful um, to me because it, it's like we talked about earlier, that feeling of we build up what a man is supposed to be or what a person is supposed to be, whatever your gender or whatever, but what a woman's supposed to be, what, who you're supposed to be. And you feel like you fall short of that. And then you're like, I'm a piece of shit. I'm not this thing I wanted to be. I wanted yeah. to be tough. I wanted to be great. I wanted to be this yeah. or that. And um, the ability to, like you said, that feeling of that is not who I am. A set is not who you are as a, a person or whatever it is, uh, a presentation at your work or a toilet you're fixing or a roof you put on is not a representation of who you are as a human being. It doesn't make you a failure if a shingle fell off or you know somebody didn't like it. And um, that, to, to me, it, it all and this is another Alan thing is it all is comes back to being connected to yourself and who you are and, and, uh, and your relationships and, and your life. That's all right in front of you. And that, that, that's what I, I, I go wrong so often is to get so removed and disconnected from reality and from the things in my life and who I am, where he has to go, you're a good person. You're a nice guy, you know, and, and you go, Oh, right. Yeah. You're a, we're we're good people trying to do our best and we we mess up in our relationships or in our work but that's okay we keep trying to get better we we try to we try to fail better yeah that's that's perfect and I, and i i think that the the other and and i i heard this from from people in the in 12 step programs this this idea of of compare and despair where yeah. you where you look at, at other people's lives and careers and and you you in comparison you you feel lousy about your yourself and I and I I remember I I was a I used to run around the the Central Park every every day which is like six miles or something and sometimes longer sometimes shorter but I would run every day and people would race past me and some people I would race past. And I, I remember I would, I would sometimes give chase to people who raced past me. And then I would say to myself and correct myself and say, Gary, maybe they just started and they're only running for 300 yards. I, maybe this person you just passed has been running for six hours that you d you don't know where they came from, what their story is. I I I thought it was, and you know, when you're running, you have so much time to think, especially if you're not listening to to podcasts or radios. And I kept thinking that's a that's a great analogy for for life because you don't know other people's journeys, and 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 maybe that guy is running away from somebody with with an axe. You you really don't know what the what the the motivation, how old they are, where they came from, what their 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 purpose for running is. Gary, you're just trying to run so that you can do uh, two shows in in one night with without being exhausted. This person is maybe training for 
a, a marathon. And, and I found that that's so helpful to adapt it to, to other areas of my life where I, where I compare and I, and I despair. Look, we all love the comedians who get on stage and kill every single night and never have a, a, a bad show. But we're valid comedians too. Right. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And then another one uh, is my, my ego is not my amigo that I like to say very similar. <laughs> and a lot of it, the same comparison is also just your ego acting up. And I do it now I run and I have to run every other day because which I also beat myself up for because I'm running on cement and I get sore and I'm older now yeah. my knee hurt my feet hurt. And I have this run keeper app. And I'm checking I my time. I love it. I love that app. It's great. But I'm like checking my times and I'm like, oh man, I ran slower today. And it's just my ego. I'm like, nobody else is looking at this. I mean, literally not any other person in the world is looking at my fucking times. And I'm like, I was five seconds slower. And I'm like, you're 38 years old. Like I'm not going anywhere. I'm running (laughs) to stay mentally fit. And it's nice for your times to go down. But I'm walking around going, fuck, I fuck yesterday. Maybe it's because the heat, the thing. And that's just ego. And my ego is not my amigo. I should go, yeah, I ran. I got up and ran. That's great. It's healthy. It was fun. It was nice. Yeah, that's, that's so terrific. Because, and, and that really helps me because I, I got into running. First, I was into walking. And then I said, let's see how long I can jog for. And I started to jog a little bit. And then all of a sudden, it became, and the Run Keeper helps you to become more competitive because you're competing against yourself. And I, and I don't think it's all terrible until you start beating yourself up or you injure yourself trying to keep pace with this, with this absurd competition that, that you've created. And you're saying it's with your, your ego. That's, that's absolutely true because I actually, I got a stress fracture, which kept me from running for three months because I was trying to add uh, mileage every week and doing these long runs. And, and I, I said, you got into this because you wanted to kill yourself. And now, <laughs> and now you're breaking, you're breaking things. This is, this is no longer helpful or, or healthy, but it was, yeah, it was ego. And, and it, it's interesting because I, I think there was a time when people brought up the word ego a lot and then it, it, got put pushed to the side for a number of other catchphrases and 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 buzzwords in in mental health but the the ego is is a motherfucker oh it really is i mean i know we got to wrap up because i I, i've this has gone uh long and i appreciate your time and i actually have some other podcasts i have to do in like 15 minutes but I, i it's hard to stop talking because each thought brings up another thought but uh just on a comedic from a comedic point, and I'm embarrassed to admit this to fans, but this is my, this is how my ego works. So when Jerry Stiller died, I just posted a, a photo of Frank Costanza and wrote my favorite Frank Costanza quote. And I was like, share some of yours. And we've talked about it before seasons eight and nine of Seinfeld, the post Larry David's years, I just think are just not great. They drive me crazy because the show lost so much of what it made it great. And they're frustrating to me. 
and everybody it lost so much Larry David. It lost all the Larry David and everybody. This is so embarrassing that I'm admitting this. Everybody that left a favorite quote from seasons eight and nine, I didn't like their comment. <laughs> because I was like, these are hacks. Festivus sucks. I hate Festivus. And I went through and seasons four, five, six, and sevens got little hearts and seasons eight and nine. And that's how my ego works. Cause I'm like, these assholes don't know shit. Seasons eight and nine, get out of here. And it's just ridiculous. In fact, I should go back and, and give them little hearts now to amend my, my actions. But I mean, that's interesting because my ego kept me from posting anything about Jerry Stiller because so many people were posting pictures with him and, and <laughs> their, their stories of working with him. And I was like, I'm not going to be, I'm, I've already lost. I'm not going to get trounced by these people. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And it's ever uh, prevalent. And it's something we in us that we we need to some degree. But um, most I'm reading a book called Ego is the Enemy right now. I don't have I don't forget the author. We've mentioned so many books here that people are like overwhelmed with book recommendations. But I think my friend Shafi brought it up a couple episodes ago. Um, but almost everything that's negative in our lives comes from ego. The idea of like someone cutting you off and you go, you motherfucker, you got to, that's ego. It feels like he's hurt your ego in some way. He got something over you. And yeah. that desire for more money and more things is all uh, compare. It's compare and despair and ego is not my amigo are, are very interlinked. Interlinked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like Big Lebowski. I'm just kind of reiterating things I hear from you. It's the second that's time I've done that. Man. That's interesting. <laughs> well, that's like just your opinion, man. Um, great film. But yeah, so many, I mean, that's our issue. And I have to, I've, I've been really consciously working on that in conversation and in, in life, just going up. Oh, this is my ego. This, uh, that's my ego doing this. Um, so helpful. I love it, man. This was um, a great session. Yeah, great, great sesh. And uh, thanks so much for doing it. I think this is our longest episode. So I appreciate oh, you. Uh, I'm, I'm honored that you that you offered, accepted and and that I'm your longest interview. This was a blast. I could, you know how I am with you. I could talk to you for three hours because there's so much overlap in our interests. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And I, it's, it's so exciting to me because, I mean, I've told the story... Uh, before, I think you were the first comedian I ever saw live at the Comedy Connection. I think Chris McGuire opened for you and maybe Ben Boyne or something like that. And I was just like, oh, it felt like you were a comedian that was made for me. I love George Carlin and Elaine Boozler and Bill Cosby. But you were doing jokes that I was like, God, that's ex that's exactly my sense of humor. And then you came to town a couple years later, or eight months later, and I bought tickets to three shows like you were Pearl Jam. <laughs> And our friend Lamont Price said, what are you doing buying tickets? He's, you're going to see him all over town. He's going to be doing spots. And I saw you about 15 times leading up to the three shows, but I still loved going to the shows. Oh, and that's awesome, man. That makes me so, so happy to be appreciated by comedians you appreciate. That's, that's quite a gift. I'm very grateful for. Yeah. And that was 20 years ago. So um, you were great even then. To, to me, anyways, I thought well, you were you, fantastic. You were, you, you were the an amazing comedian from the first time I, I saw you and, and I, I knew you would, you would be this as, as great as you've turned out because the, the, the one thing you can't teach or impart is, is you love 
you love comedy. You don't you don't love gossip or or money or or fame or or things. You love jokes, laughing and making people laugh. And 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 I think that's the greatest indicator of whether somebody will be success in this in this business by the reasonable definition of success, which is that you do you reach your potential as a as a writer and comedian and performer. Well, that makes me feel good. Well, I appreciate it, Gary. Thanks so much, man. This is a great episode. I love you, I'm Joe. grateful. I love you, buddy. Thank you. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.